So, we'll begin. So, first of all, I just want to say a very warm welcome to all of you. And we'll start with some introductions for those of you who don't know us. This is John Teaster. This is John Peacock, and he's not the 100-meter Paralympic runner. He's not wearing his gold medal. <laughs> um, here we have uh, Sophie, who will be leading the mindful movement during the retreat. You will get to see her when she turns around tomorrow. And my name's Christina. So this evening we really want to just, really to welcome you, um, to give a little bit of orientation to this retreat. I think, first of all, I'd, I'd like to start by applauding your getting here. I know for many people how much effort it actually takes, how much rearrangement it takes to actually make the space to come on a week-long retreat. And, you know, the willingness to do that, I, I think, is a real embodiment of the commitment that we have and I think coming together in this environment, this retreat, as you know, is really so specifically offered to those who are engaging in mindfulness and mindfulness-based applications in their work. And there's also something quite remarkable about that, I think, just to mark that and to honor that. And to know that what we're doing on this retreat is, is not about teaching clinical skills or you know, the very practical applications of mindfulness. This retreat is concerned with our understanding of what we teach. It's, it's really that opportunity to deepen very directly in one's own experiential understanding of this practice and this path of mindfulness, of insight, that can make such a difference in our own lives and can truly have a transformative effect in the world that we live in. I guess I would like to just acknowledge that starting a retreat requires you know, some psychological and emotional reorientation for all of us. Probably many of you in this room, in coming here, you're stepping out of lives of busyness, of doing, of responsibility, of, um, you know, a myriad of demands and needs that you meet every day. So arriving here asks for a certain adjustment, out of some of that kind of momentum of doing and a re-establishing of oneself into a different quality of being. Not so much about doing, not so much about fixing, not so much about accomplishing or performing, but learning how it's possible for each one of us to return to a place of greater stillness, greater receptivity, greater calmness, a deeper capacity to listen inwardly, knowing that this is really the wellspring, the foundation 
of our capacity to live and to act in this world, to be with others, with kindness, with our capacity for listening, for empathy, for compassion. It's very important to acknowledge that just arriving on a retreat does not a retreat make. You know, there's nothing particularly intrinsic in Gaia House that ensures that we develop all these wonderful capacities. I think for many of us, the kind of psychological and emotional reorientation that happens in coming here is recognizing that in many ways this place is actually fairly neutral. But it's a space in which we, each one of us, I think individually, are asked to examine what is it that we would need to cultivate? What is it that we would be asked to cultivate to allow us to be here in the most wholehearted way possible? Might it be more calmness? Might it be more receptivity? Might it be more compassion? We might almost in the same breath ask ourselves, what is it that we would each one of us individually be asked to let go of to allow us to be here most wholeheartedly? For most of us, it's it's in the realm of habit, (laughs) psychological and emotional habits of, you know, evaluating, assessing, comparing, um, judging, agitation, Aversion. We tend to have, a, you know, our own personal lists of these, um, but they're probably not so dissimilar between people. But there's something about a beginning and making a beginning, which I actually think is really important. Starts from this place of reflectiveness, and really starts from this place of personal investigation. Okay, we're here. We arrive. How we are here, in many ways, really lies in our hands. So just that kind of acknowledgement. One other thing I'd just like to say, uh, just really at the outset, is that we, we will be situating the teaching in this retreat in a a particular discourse given by the Buddha called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Ways of Establishing Mindfulness. In a very real way, this particular sutta, this particular discourse, is the foundation of all practices of insight meditation, But it is also the discourse which is really the foundation of all teachings of mindfulness-based applications, even though that the link between them may not always seem so obvious. So you will hear us throughout this week making quite a lot of references to the teaching in this discourse. You will hear us... uh, using some words which initially may sound a little bit unfamiliar to you and may seem to sit in some sort of Buddhist mode. I just want to reassure you that in using those references and um, making those links, um, we don't have any particular intention here to churn out Buddhists. Um, That's not what we're here for. But in, in relating both the practice we do here and mindfulness-based applications 
to this particular teaching. It allows us, I think, the possibility of an enormous depth of understanding, both of the breadth and the subtleties of this word we use called mindfulness. But it allows us to actually deepen our, in deepening our own understanding of that teaching, learn its liberating lessons. And actually, you know, this is really the core of this particular teaching that is the root of insight meditation, that's the root of mindfulness-based applications. It really is about liberation. It's really about learning the ways to free the heart from the grip of habits that don't serve us well. Learning how to free the heart from the misunderstandings and the misperceptions that just lead to torment and distress. It's really about learning the ways, moment to moment, to bring distress and to bring torment to an end. In the time that this particular teaching was given around developing understanding, developing insight, the Buddha never did just teach formal meditation. He really taught the cultivation of an awakened life. And that cultivation very much began with mindfulness with learning to wake up, learning to investigate. But then in this teaching, the Buddha very much talked about the ways in which mindfulness then engages with the whole of our lives, with how we speak, how we act, the choices we make, our relationships, our work. That mindfulness was never meant, or this practice was never meant to be something just cultivated in a cloistered cave, you know, that required us to leave the world. It was actually to be cultivated in order to show us a way to live this life and to live in this this world we live in with the greatest compassion, the greatest sensitivity, the greatest understanding. Now, what we do here over these days is is a pretty dedicated time. Um, I mean... You may not, you probably haven't seen the schedule yet. (laughs) It'll go up later. We don't actually put it in the flyers. Um, But what you will see when it goes up is, you know, like you don't see words like break. You know, we're going to have a break now. Um, you You don't actually see, you know, kind of in the schedule, you know, movie time or... You know, um, you know, time for... <laughs> anyway, you don't see any of that because really the heart of this practice is about this kind of sustained, embodied, mindful presence in the midst of all things. So we will... Uh, it, it asks a lot of us, this practice. And there's no doubt about that. It asks a lot of us whether we're you know, developing a daily practice or whether, whether we're on retreat. This path actually asks a lot of us. It's not really for the faint-hearted. It asks for a lot of courage. It asks for a lot of commitment. We ask this of many people in our lives. 
when they engage in this practice. And we ask it of ourselves. And I would say there's almost like two aspects to this path that we'll be engaging in here. It's not just about sitting, it's about how we walk, how we move, how we engage with the world. But there's two aspects. And one aspect of this path and this practice, I think of being as the kind of art of the practice. And the other aspect I think of as being kind of the craft, the form. So in the craft part, you know, we develop, we develop our capacity to be here. We develop our capacities for attentiveness. We develop our capacities for focus. We develop our capacities for investigation. This very much lies within the form, within the style of the practice. But it so needs to be interwoven with the art of the practice. And I think John will speak much more about this. But the art of the practice really comes much more to the sort of heart of this. The compassion, our attitudinal relationship of our capacities for compassion and kindness and empathy and listening. And these two need to be so woven together. If we have only the art, the longings for a more heartful way, wise way of living this life, if we have only the art without the form, often we just have like good ideas of how we would like to be, how we would wish to be, without any way of grounding that. But if we have the form, just knowing the techniques and the styles without the art, we become technicians. You know, we have prescriptions, we have strategies. But without the heart part, without the art part, I don't actually think it really leads to an inner transformation. So much of what is asked of us over these days is this constant ongoing exploration, this ongoing investigation in our own experience, really, about how to weave these two together. The craft and the art, the form, and we might say the spirit or the attitude. It's a good time for me to stop. I will just incline this towards you. Thanks, Christina. Um, Let me add my own um, very wholehearted welcome to Christina's. Um, As she says, it's truly wonderful that you've taken this time out of your busy lives to dedicate these days to creating a situation together where we share this intention of arranging conditions so that we deepen understanding, we deepen practice in ways that hopefully will lead both to greater freedom for ourselves of heart and mind, but also crucially through that we will be better able to transform the suffering of the patients and the clients that we serve through our work in mindfulness-based applications. So, if you like, what we're doing is creating a culture, an environment, 
by putting together a number of conditions, a number of components. And as Christina has said, some of these are very obvious, the more formal aspects of the sitting and the walking, the Dharma talks. But to be truly transformative, these more form aspects need to be supported and suffused with certain general qualities um, that really, as much as possible, we bring to each and every moment of the retreat. Not making a burdensome task of that, but simply holding it as an intention. And the three qualities I want to focus on specifically are kindness, simplicity, and silence. And of these, really, kindness is the one that I want to take first because it is so crucially important. It is the foundation of this whole path of practice. I'll explain why in more detail in a talk on Sunday. But essentially, so much of our own and others' suffering is caused by a basic lack of kindness, an unkindness, that it's not perhaps that difficult to see that kindness has to be the foundation and suffuse everything within the path in which we're seeking to relieve suffering and transform it. And if we look at this unkindness, we can see, if we look closely, just how unkind we can be to ourselves. On a retreat like this, it's very common for experiences in which our minds are all over the place or that we get the sense that we're just not making any progress, we're not getting anywhere, or that we make obvious mistakes. And it's very easy to turn very harshly, critically, judgmentally on ourselves at those times. And we can be quite quite unkind in ways that we wouldn't be to anybody else. And in this, of course, we share something with many of our patients, particularly depressed patients, for whom these patterns are very deeply rooted. Um, If we look at our relationship to our experience, so often we're wanting to wish our experience out of existence. We don't want to be having this experience right now. We want to be having another experience. We just want to push this one away. And there's a fundamental unkindness in that gesture of denying this experience its time in the sun, if you like. You know, just to express the wish that really you'd be better, we'd be better off if you weren't here at all. And of course, to other beings, we can, while we may not act overtly in speech or deed, we can harbour quite judgmental, critical, irritable feelings and thoughts. So the invitation really is to create and sustain an intention in which as best we can and as creatively as we can, we bring this gesture of kindness to ourselves, to our experience, to 
all beings we encounter on the retreat. And to ourselves, if we can just soften a little, and we can do that by softening our bodies, relaxing, softening our movements, just bringing some gentleness in, some compassion. When things are going all over the place, and our minds all over the place, and things don't seem to be going well. You know, the reality is that this is a result of a certain set of conditions, most of which, many of which, are not under your control, our control. So rather than turning on ourselves, and blaming ourselves, and judging ourselves, what's needed in that moment is some kindness, some compassion, some gentleness, The invitation isn't simply to go and have a cup of tea every time that you're feeling the need of one or just bathe in the sun and enjoy the time you're here in that sense because clearly that wouldn't be kind in the long term. You know, this is a rare and precious opportunity. So there is a, the wise kindness is one of availing yourself of these opportunities but the tone is one of gentleness, kindness to yourself. Similarly to your experience, to allow your experience to be as it is in the moment, rather than demanding that experiences that you're having at this moment be gone, and that you have experiences that you're not having. Most often what you need in the way of learning is what's being presented to you in this moment. So if we can begin to reverse that process, to open, to allow, to treat as gifts the experiences that we have. Everything is grist to the mill, and we can learn from it. To others, um, we can be generous within the constraints of the re retreat, you know, maybe help others in the work period, open doors for them, wish them well as we pass them by, maintain silence, as I'll explain shortly, follow the precepts that John will describe. All these are very practical ways in which we can express that fundamental kindness. And I cannot stress too strongly just how fundamentally important this is. Turning to quality of simplicity um, you've probably heard it said very often you know, mindfulness is simple but not easy in principle there's a beautiful simplicity about taking our life our experience one moment at a time one moment we can always handle we can always deal with and if we can take care of this moment skillfully then that will take care of the next moment and so our life can unfold more and more skillfully, more and more freely. But of course, in everyday life, we're pulled in so many directions by our to-do lists, our agendas, our plans, our projects, um, decisions we have to make, conflicts we have to resolve. And this provides us with, this retreat provides us with a very rare and precious opportunity to cut through all that. Thoreau, who many of you will know is one of John Kabat-Zinn's favorite 
authors went to the woods to live a life of simplicity. And he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So here on the retreat, there is this very precious opportunity, if you like, to go to the woods for a week, just to strip things down to the bare essentials, come close to life, really engage intimately with experience, without the distractions we normally encounter. And as much as possible, I would invite you this evening just to put down all the baggage that you may have brought with you, any plans you may have had of projects you wanted to work on while you were here, personal problems you wanted to solve, things that have come in that are ongoing concerns from outside. As much as possible, do whatever you have to do to tidy up these loose ends. Make any phone calls you need to do so that you can approach tomorrow almost as a blank sheet. You know, you have no agendas other than that of simply following the schedule. And I would really invite you, just as an experiment, to surrender to the schedule, to let go of the need to plan and make decisions, to set up your own schedule for the day. Just experiment with doing what it actually says on the schedule. When it says sit, sit. When it says walk, walk. Rather than have to you know, make decisions about now, am I going to go for a long walk? Am I going to go for a low down? Shall I lie down? Shall I have a cup of tea? Just see how it is, just to surrender and let go that whole planning routine that we normally engage in. Because that can enable us to get really close to our experience. And the same can be said of silence, which is one of the most obvious things about this retreat and one of the most unusual for most of us. And if you've not experienced these kind of retreats before, it can generate a degree of apprehension, particularly because silence is often associated with you know, punishment or disapproval. Here it can be a wonderful, wonderful support to your practice. There is a power in silence in itself. Even if we had no specific meditations or techniques, silence itself could do an enormous amount. If you walk down to the laundry room right now, you'll see over one of the sinks a little framed quote from Rumi, which says, let silence speak to you about the secrets of the universe. And that's really pointing to the fact that if we can let go the external chatter, then the internal chatter can quieten down and we can move from the surface level of our minds where everything is chattering and busy and rippling and we can connect with the deeper levels to which Christina was pointing where there is a very different way available to us to relate to our experience, to see things, to know things, another way for the mind to operate. But we can only do that by really dedicatedly observing what's called, quite rightly, the noble silence. 
And I'll say practically what this involves shortly, but I would really urge you, both as a gift to yourself and as kindness to others, to observe this noble silence religiously. Because the way it works is like this. If you imagine what we're doing here in many ways, you're probably familiar with this image of the glass of muddy water, the cylinder of muddy water, which is all stirred up and cloudy. And if we leave it for hours or days, eventually it'll be crystal clear. Everything settles to the bottom. But in a few seconds, that can be tipped over and you're back to the state of muddiness and cloudiness that you started with. And you have to start all over again. And in many ways, that's how silence works. We work to let the mind settle. We support it settling with silence, with focusing our attention. And it can seem so innocent, so little a thing, just to check, see whether there's any texts come in, or have a brief word with your roommate, or phone up home to see what's happening. But the effects of that, even if it's only a contact of a minute, can ripple out and just ricochet through your mind and take you back hours, days. So really, I would urge you, plead with you almost, please observe noble silence as an act of kindness to yourself and particularly to other people because it's almost an abuse of them to intrude onto their silence. Um, So basically what this involves practically is not to use any speech unless invited to do so by a teacher or by a coordinator in the work period. Um, It can be particularly difficult to observe this aspect if you're sharing a room with somebody you know, a friend or somebody who you'd like to talk to, please resist that temptation. Resist the temptation to go for walks with other people so you might have a chance to talk to them then. Most specifically, you know, um, because they're clearly works of the devil, please turn off mobile phones, (laughs) iPads, any other device through which... You know, you can contact others through um, the ether. It's, it's not right, and um, only harm can come from this. So I would really urge you, um, you know, to adopt the discipline. Switch it off now, put it at the bottom of your suitcase, and don't take it out until the end of the retreat. If there's a family crisis going on, if somebody is very ill or if there's an emergency that you need to keep in touch, then obviously... That's different. But otherwise, please resist that temptation. Um, try, please refrain from communicating with other retreatants by notes. That's always a temptation. Okay, well, I'm not going to talk, but I'll leave them a note on the board. Only put notes on the board, please, for teachers or managers. Um, limit your reading, because we're really trying to connect with a deeper part of our minds. And every time we go into verbal conceptual mode, it pulls us out of that. You know, a page or two of a Dharma text a day is fine. Similarly, limit your writing. But a day or two, you know, a page or two might be fine in a journal, but it's really avoiding losing yourself in reading or writing. Um, As far as eye contact goes, 
you'll have to use your judgment here. Some people like just to avoid eye contact altogether. So if people do that to you here, you smile at them and they ignore you. Please don't take it unkindly. But equally, if you'd like to smile back, then that's fine. It's really just avoid going around searching for people, you know, trying to catch their eyes. Because in many ways, one of the beauties of silence is the simplicity and protection it gives us. We don't have to present this front. We can just let go of all that appearing in a certain way. And we can also let go of taking care of people. We've got a room full of therapists, you know. We've got well-established habits of taking care. You don't need to do it here. If you're worried about anybody, drop us a note and we'll take care of them. Is there anything else crucial about silence, I should say, because it's so important to cover the bases on it? Um, only to note, uh, also to note that, you know, it's very important if you do have, a, a, as, as John said, a family member who's in a, a, you know, a fragile position, but knowing that Gaia House is well also set up for this, that, you know, if anybody phones here for you, out of office hours, um, a phone number is offered um, in emergency situations, so somebody will always be able to get to you. Mm. Yeah, that's very important. Um, and it's important to be confident that that can happen because that means you then don't have to check your text. Yeah. I mean, the system works. It's one that both Christina and I insisted on setting up because we had the experience of somebody's mother actually dying while she was on the retreat here. and they couldn't get through to her. So we now have a hopefully fail-safe system in which that wouldn't happen. So there's no need to keep checking just in case something goes wrong. Okay, let me stop there, wishing you all a very fruitful, happy, peaceful and kind retreat. Thank you. I too want to um, add my welcome to all the other welcomes you've had um, and at the start of this retreat. This is a precious opportunity, as I think you've heard Christina and John both say, for many, many reasons. Um, it's an opportunity to be able to come into the silence and begin to examine things, to see literally what's going on. I almost like to say, often when I'm teaching retreats here, I say, this is the mantra for the week, what's going on? You know, what's actually happening in your minds, in your bodies? How is it to be here, just to be, just to sit, to breathe, to walk, to do these very, very simple things? What has already been mentioned as well is that mindfulness is not just a sitting practice, it's not just a walking practice. In the tradition from which it emerges, mindfulness is for life. It's literally for the way that we live it was never meant to be just an esoteric practice, isolated to give nice blissful states or anything of that sort. It was, was meant to be something that actually began to permeate your life, began to move into your life. You know, so this is a practice for life itself. And as such, the way that the Buddha particularly taught this was to actually introduce areas of examination where you can begin to look at what is actually happening in your daily life, in your daily interactions. And these are generally called precepts. Now, if you go to any popular book on Buddhism, you'll see 
them listed in this sort of way. Don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take drink and drugs, basically. And this, by, this, this kind of popularization of it tends to lose everything that's important here. Um, everything's important about being in a situation like this and having a chance to, for example, examine areas of our ethical, moral lives and also for being out in the world. This just becomes another prescriptive list. What the Buddha's path, and this path is really is nothing in a sense esoteric again, it's a path about living a life fully awake. Actually living this life in a state of wakefulness as opposed to a state of sleepiness, of somnambulism, of walking around in a sleepwalking state, often just driven by blind desires and blind aversions, and never really beginning to examine how they dominate um, your life by becoming the habit patterns that they do. So this list of so-called precepts, which is part of the container that we ask you to really to hold while you're here, isn't just about something that goes on while you're here. They become tools for examining your moral and ethical lives. Now, in their full formulations, I won't give you them all in this way, but in their full formulation, it's considered to be what's called a rule of training. It's something you engage in to train yourself to be able to look at areas of, as I say, your moral, ethical, um, day-to-day life. And the first one, instead of saying just don't kill, it says this. It says, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. So this is actually about examining all your relationships of harm. Now, you've heard John speak particularly eloquently about the need, the necessity for kindness. So you're included in this. This is harming a living being. Our self-lacerating attitudes that we often take up towards ourselves are part of self-harm, part of aversion, of, of, uh, often in, inwardly performed. But it's particularly also true about the way that we harm others. You know, we often take that harming of ourselves and we extend it to others. You know, if I'm having a miserable time, everybody else ought to have a miserable time as well. You know, if I'm feeling particularly bad, then I'll make it a virtue by trying to make you feel equally as bad. So we take out this, this sense of inner harm into an outer form as well. And this can come out from you know, you know, minor acts of what I call verbal harmfulness, and I'll come on to that a little bit later, to physical acts of violence sometimes. You know, literally wanting to get rid of something, get, push something or somebody away in some kind of violent way, either verbally or physically. So it's actually about examining all of our harmful relations, both with ourselves and with others. So to simply say, don't kill, kind of loses all of the major force that really the Buddha was trying to intend us to get to look at by this particular precept. Now, all of them have this form of undertaking a rule of training, so I won't repeat this for all of them. The second precept is a precept of not just stealing. It's actually to engage in this rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. 
you know, as I used to remind my students at university when I was teaching there, was, you know, for example, plagiarism, using the words of others. That's a wonderful form of theft in many ways, uh, often not considered by many people to be that way. But it means also you know, looking at our, again, moral ethical lives in relationship to this. You know, what are we doing? What are we taking that's not offered? For example, opinions. You know, sometimes we take these on board, we habituate ourselves, they almost feel like they're us. Um, we've taken them from media, from other people, you know, something which is actually, in a sense, not given. We also take little things, you know, and again, this is not meant to be morally heavy or ethically heavy, but again, to look at our modes of behaviour in ordinary life. What are we taking that is not offered? Now, I've suggested some, you know, slight, some particular areas, but there's often the thing you know, in the office of taking the paperclip, the, the little, I don't know, borrowing somebody's milk. They won't mind you know, if I take their milk out of the fridge or whatever it is or you know, um, that little telephone call or whatever it might be. So again, this is examining our relationship with that which isn't freely given to us, that which isn't freely offered to us. You know, so we look at that in relation to our everyday lives and our being here as well. This becomes, as I say, part of the container. The third one is an interesting one. I think I kind of the little translation I gave it to, of gave you in popular books usually says like don't engage in sexual misconduct. Um, again, this loses the full force of it because actually in the original language, in the, the language in which all this stuff was recorded in the early texts, this actually translates of refraining from engaging in sensual and sexual misconduct. Now, this is overindulgence of the senses. It really is. Now, we can overindulge in the senses. Now, hopefully, you know, having heard what John said about you know, everything with the button, switching it off, um, you know, not looking at iPads and not looking at um, your mobiles or whatever. But also, when we're at home, being aware of how we're overstimulating our minds with stuff. Now, that overstimulation has to find often an outlet when we're on retreat. We, again, John has outlined perhaps not reading as much, perhaps trying to cut out reading altogether while we're here, not writing, not sketching, not doing all the sort of things that we normally do. Part of the sensual misconduct, if you like, is attached to ways of distracting ourselves, amusing ourselves to death. This is what we engage in. Now, one of the great dangers of being on retreat is that distraction often goes into something which is very noticeable here, which is uh, an over-emphasis on the importance of food. (laughs) Now, I've run retreats for many, many years now, and often I feel sometimes that retreats are really eating sessions interrupted by a few walking and (laughs) sitting sessions. (laughs) When I see the tremendous groaning plates full of food that people stagger back to their tables with, I just wonder how they stay awake in the afternoons, if they do. 
Um, so this is one to watch. This over, you know, overindulgence of the senses and particularly sensory gratification through food and overimportance of food. So it's just one to be aware of while, whilst you're here. And then, of course, sexual misconduct. It refers primarily to all the sort of things that we would normally expect under sexual misconduct. Then we come to an extremely important one. Sounds odd to be talking about this, having given what John has just said about um, keeping noble silence during this week. Well, it was one thing we, again, notice very quickly when we're on retreat. Even if we're keeping the outer silence, the inner, si- the inner silence often isn't there. You know? There's a lot of noise going on in our minds. Um, so we, we speak we talk, we chatter to ourselves, even if it's never outwardly expressed. There's this chattering going on. Now, this particular precept, this fourth precept, is to do with actually looking at the quality of our speech. So it runs about a rule of training, which is actually to refrain from false speech. Sometimes this gets extended. So it actually makes you look at not just false speech, but harsh speech, divisive speech and chatter. I often say about these four things, you know, um, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech and chatter, is there anything really left to say? (laughs) You know, because actually this, this actually is a huge amount of what passes for our speech acts. Now, that just doesn't stop when we enter into silence. So it's looking at the quality of those speech acts which are going on internally. Look at the stories that we're telling ourselves. You, know, you will probably conjure up some most wonderful stories about people you don't know over this week, never having spoken to them at all. So you'll be formulating stories. We can be thinking very harsh things about people, and we can be just chattering to ourselves. Just the mindless sort of verbiage that's going on. And then finally, there is the precept about not taking drink and drugs. It's actually to, the actual proper way of translating this is to refrain from taking substances which cloud the mind. Which actually cloud the mind. Now, one can look at this and think, well, perhaps this figure who we call the Buddha was just a prude. He just didn't like these substances, and therefore he was trying to stop people from engaging in them, enjoying themselves. But if you actually look at this, as the whole path of meditation, this path of which we're engaging in for this week, this path actually is, is a process of the clarification of the mind. It's actually about waking up. You know, as I said you know, right at the beginning of this little talk. So if it's about the process of waking up, actually the substances which cloud the mind, and I'm not talking about prescription drugs or anything like that, but just obviously the kind of more recreational stuff and the alcohol, which is very much part of our society. These are the substances which cloud our minds. And of course, then we're going against the very tenor of what this practice is about, which is waking up, with a great deal of clarity to the way things are. 
There's another good, compelling reason, I actually think, for looking at this particular one, is, um, and if I have a whiteboard, I tend to list these in order, you know, precept one from harming living beings to precept five about not taking substances which cloud the mind. If you engage in five, there's very high likelihood of you uh, committing all of the above, you know, all of the other things. It's so, so much easier when that balance of the mind is disturbed and clouded. And so these are the precepts which we ask you to abide whilst we're here, but they're also really good tools for taking into, the ordin- into your ordinary life and using them to examine actually some of the most fundamental facets of our behaviour. Harm, taking what is not offered, sensual, sexual misconduct, false speech, with all of the caveats about the other forms of speech, and looking at the use that we make of mind-clouding substances. I'll leave that one with you.